0: When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh,
1: anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in
0: more ways than one. Bob Dylan.
2: There was a little boy and there was a little girl and they lived in an alley under the red sky. There was a little boy and there was a little girl and they lived in an alley under the red sky. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the Freewheelin' Rob Kelly, and joining us this week to talk about the title track from 1990s, Under the Red Sky, is fellow Bobcat Eric Brightman. Hi, Eric. Hey, Rob. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for being here. Honored to be
0: here. Thanks for having me.
2: I am uh, really excited to talk about this song in particular. Uh, I think this album is. Uh, well, I don't even want to say I think. I think it's just a true statement that as Bob Dylan albums go, this album is is relatively unheralded uh, <laughs> in terms of his fans. And so it doesn't get a whole lot of play here on the show. I mean, I like this album and there's some terrific songs on it. And we've covered a few in the past, but it's not something that people ask for a lot. So I'm sort of fascinated why you would want to talk about uh, a song from this album. But we'll, we'll get to all that. But of course, I got to ask you, Eric, how did you become a fan of Bob?
0: So my story is, uh, I find it similar to many of the stories I've, I've heard on your show before. Um, I was a child of the 80s, so oftentimes... I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be. I loved it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I, I, would, I would come home from school and flip on the TV, of course. And um, when we weren't watching G.I. Joe or Transformers, we were watching <laughs> MTV videos. That was a thing back in the day. Um, and, and while I wasn't someone who collected really any music, I was someone who was always paying attention i would record my favorite songs off the radio i would record my favorite videos on a vcr back in the day and uh but nothing really grabbed me so much as to say oh i need to go out and get that album until one day in late 1988 and you may know where this is going <laughs> there was a video for handle with care by the traveling world Brace came on mm-hmm. and immediately i was just riveted by the song and the video and like this song is amazing i love these and it's a very simple song but somehow it grabbed me, and I, I was I was watching MTV, and I said I got to record this video. And I would once I got it recorded, I watched it over and over again. And it's not just the song itself, but just watching those five guys, not even knowing the full historical context of those five guys being in the same room singing that song at that time. You know, I was uh, I knew Tom Petty probably the best out of the five of them at that point, uh, having heard his songs all over the radio. I knew I knew who Bob was. I could probably name two or three songs. Uh, Roy Orbison, I knew, was the Oh Pretty Woman guy, and and that's an awesome song. You know, this is my thought at the time. And George Harrison's a Beatle, that's cool. And then there's the other guy who's an ELO, but I don't really know what that is.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Why is there Bigfoot in this band? I don't understand.
0: (laughs) So, and and don't disrespect to Jeff, but as as time went by, I said, "I, I have to get this. And I think what ended up happening is my parents bought it for me that Christmas, I think the song came out in October. So that December, they bought it for me. And I'm, I'm listening to the cassette a lot. And and the songs that are grabbing me are Dirty World and Tweeter and the Monkey Man. There you go. And the thing that grabbed me, which didn't grab a lot of folks, especially at that time, is that voice. I'm like, that voice is amazing. <laughs> Listen to that voice. And a lot of people go the other way. You know, my mom, to this day, does an impression. Whenever I, we, I talk about Bob in front of her, she does this, oh, you like that guy? I <laughs> And it just makes me cringe and want to change the subject immediately. So, (laughs) so, um, so that started me on my path, but then from there, I wasn't really sure where to go. I'm like, I got to find out more about this guy, but I'm not really sure how to go forward. So then I, I think I probably got the greatest hits one and two, listen to those like those, but there's still so much more out there. Where do you go from there? And then moving forward a little bit, uh, it's uh fall of 1990 i would work i was working in the uh, mail room it was my freshman year of college then i was working early in the morning for a freshman in college uh we were my shift was about 8 a.m to 11 i would work sorting mail and the manager was black would blast classic rock radio while we did our work and there was this one song that came on by dylan seemingly every day and i'm like that song is amazing what is that song i know it's not on the greatest hits that i have and i would try and get close enough to the radio to hear when they would announce it but i couldn't quite hear it and so I was trying to figure out what it was all I could come up with is the song must be called 10 to 11 blues because he says 10 to 11 blues at the end of every verse so it's, it's that's got to be the name of it and I looked everywhere and I couldn't find a song called 10 to 11 blues anyway what is that song I, I remember even asking people like no never heard of anything like that before well finally one day I got close enough to the radio to, to hear them announce the song and the song was tangled
2: up in blue <laughs> Oh, that, <laughs> I was really like, what song is that? I'm talking, I was really figuring out where the hell is he going with this? Okay. All right. Makes sense. And, sure.
0: and once I figured out Tangled Up in Blue and figured out Blood on the Tracks, that kind of started to blow everything open. That combined with, um, I had mentioned to a friend that I was really trying to get into Dylan and didn't know where to go. And he said, well, I have his two most recent albums, if you want to borrow them. And at the time, that was Oh Mercy and Under the Red Sky. Aha. Uh-huh. And he lent me those two albums. And again, I'm like, this voice, I like the state of his voice at that period of time, which I don't think a lot of people, even fanatics, will say, but I was grabbed immediately. So that combination of, of things set me on my path. And by the, you know, by early 91, I was on my way with uh, my love for Bob.
2: That's fantastic. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So when you, so, so when you got Oh Mercy and, uh, and Under the Red Sky, uh, one of the things I remember enjoying about Oh Mercy is that it was pretty much the last time Bob Dylan ever got played on MTV. Because mm. I remember they played Political World every <laughs> so often. Uh, I never saw any of the videos for Under the Red Sky played on. They played on VH1, but they would never play on MTV. Right, that, that, that
0: unbelievable uh, video with the pig.
2: Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, directed by his son. Um, and so, do you remember what your feeling was about those two records? Because they could not be any further different. I mean, sonically, lyrically, I mean, I would imagine if you're a new fan, you could almost be like, is this the same guy?
0: <laughs> yeah, they're very, very different. But even for myself, I consider myself a fanboy more than a scholar, even of Bob. So, for me, I was all in on all of this stuff. Um, and again, two very different things. I mean, I can recognize Oh Mercy as a masterpiece almost immediately. I mean, this is next level stuff. Um, under the red sky, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to say, Oh, it belongs up there with Highway 61 and blood on the tracks or anything like that. But I think it's worthy of our, uh, of our attention and worthy. Uh, and as he's got a lot to say on this that I think kind of people kind of just shove off to the side or, or maybe don't think about. But I, I don't know if I necessarily think I would say I saw them on the same level, but I think I immediately recognized that I, I love them both immediately.
2: Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Oh, geez. I want to talk about all that, but but I do want to ask <laughs> you, have you seen Bob live? So
0: I have seen Bob live. Um, I went back and did the math when I knew it was coming on and it worked out to 24 times I've seen him live. Nice. Um, I actually had tickets to 27. So three times I had the physical tickets and didn't make it to the show, which is uh, not worth getting into but uh so I could have seen him more um, and there was a gap I didn't see him between 2012 and, and 2021 also so life kind of got in the way I got married and had a couple of kids and things were a little harder to do during that period but um, I remember that that first time I went to see him was may 9 1991 and uh, I know 1991 gets a bad rap is a bad year for Bob in concert but uh, I, I've listened to the, I've listened to the bootleg many times sorry Bob but uh, uh and to me the show holds up and I think it's an amazing show. It, it's a great show for that era. So I would encourage anyone to listen to that. It's, I think it's out there, you know, amongst everyone. But I, immediately I was like, "This is great." You know, my a friend of mine went to Northeastern. The show was at Northeastern, and he, when he heard Bob was performing, he immediately dialed me up and said, "Hey, Bob Dylan's coming. You want to go to the show?" I'm like, "Hell yeah, I want to go to the show." And uh, <laughs> and I probably only knew about half of the songs, but I was I was right there for it. So the next time I saw him was actually only two months later. He performed in the same area. Uh, in july of 91 and that show was much more in line with the uh ramshackle shows of 91 shall we say to be <laughs> kind <laughs> but uh, even then uh again i've also listened back to that bootleg and at that show he played uh, bob dylan's dream and two soldiers three years before world gone Run came out so wow. those, are two, those are two songs that i didn't know at the time but i look back and i go wow i was there for that and they they sound great and then um The following year, 92, uh, the same friend who went to Northeastern, his brother went to University of Connecticut and Bob was there and he hooked me up again and said, we got to go to Yukon and see him again. And that show is late 92. And and I feel that's when the Neverending Tour really took off that 92, 93, 94 era, my favorite era of the Neverending Tour. And um, that Connecticut show was like from that show on, I'm like, if this guy's in the area, I got to go see him.
2: (laughs) Now, you said you saw him in 2021, which means you saw him on the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour?
0: I did. I saw The Providence Show.
2: Oh, wow. We said we just covered those shows uh, on the previous episode of the show. What did you think of that? It was,
0: I mean, this word is uh, maybe flowery. I just found it it was transcendent. It really was. To see Bob perform those songs was amazing to me. And the song, I I know you had talked about how you weren't going to listen to any of the bootlegs ahead of time. You wanted to go in unspoiled. And, And I had that same thought. Until I heard that he played Key West. Once I heard he played Key West, I said I have got to hear what that sounds like <laughs> immediately because I, I can't even explain it, but that song just kind of hits me on a, on a on a on a gut level, and it just it, it means a lot to me. And To see him sing that live was it meant a lot to me. And uh, I actually had a funny uh, interaction at that show. I went to the show by myself, and, I, and I'm sitting there waiting for the show to begin, and a, and a nice old man sat down next to me with his wife, and he leans over to me and says, "So uh, when's the last time you saw Dylan?" And I said, uh, well, it's been a while actually, since 2012. And he says, Oh, I haven't seen him since 1965 at the Newport Folk Festival. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went, Wow. And he says, Yeah, I mean, he says, his stuff in the 60s was the best stuff. And I go, I mean, you were there for the Boeing and everything? And he says, Yeah, yeah. And then he says, I really hope we hear a in the wind tonight. And I, I didn't have the, I was, trying oh. to, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to gently let him know, I, I'm sorry. I don't think you're going to hear that. I've been, what, he's playing a lot of the stuff from his new album. I'm trying to prepare him. Right. And, and, and to the man's credit, he did enjoy the show a lot. He was clapping along and he seemed to be into it, even the new songs. At one point he leaned over to me and said, his songs are a lot more sophisticated than they used to be. <laughs> Which I thought was r- really funny, but uh, wow. he was very into it. And then, towards the end of the show, he leaned over and he go, I wonder if he's going to play his harmonica tonight. And I was like, mm, I, I don't think so. I'm sorry. I don't think you're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, it was nice to share that. And again, like I said, he was, he during goodbye, Jimmy Reed. He was st- trying to start the audience clap and everything like that. So he was very far into it. Uh, we we talked a little bit. He mentioned that is uh, him and his wife danced to, if not for you at their wedding, oh. uh, it was, he had been married, he's been married for 50 years and that was their wedding song. And I, Mentioned to him that me and my wife danced to Emotionally Yours at our wedding. Um, Although I don't know if he quite knew what
2: that song was. Right. uh, (laughs) (laughs) If he wanted to hear Blown in the Wind, he probably wasn't big on Empire Burlesque.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if uh, Arthur Baker is (laughs) his (laughs) thing.
2: That's amazing. I love the idea that there's like a guy out there who's only seen Bob a handful of times, but like every time he's gone, it was some huge show. You know, he was like, oh, I was at the one where he got called Judas. And yeah. then I went yeah. to you know, like, he was only manages to show up for like this huge, I oh, was at Live Aid, I think. was yeah. that the show? <laughs> Nicholson came out. That's all I can remember. Like what? Yeah. You know,
0: I, mean, I, I, I was lucky enough. I was lucky enough to go see Bob's return to Newport in 2001. And that was, that was quite a show to see. And I didn't, couldn't tell from my vantage point that he was, dressed up in the getup that he wore in the across the green mountain video up on stage so, but, uh, that that weird was wig, cool. yeah 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 yeah
2: oh wow that's phenomenal Well, i'm glad you had a good time at the at oh the, it was great the new yeah. show yeah i mean it was just amazing how how close were you to the seat? where how could you see him pretty clearly
0: so i got my ticket a little bit late but getting a single seat allowed me to get pretty close so i think i was about 20 rows back but i was dead center so
2: nice Pretty
0: perfect seat, yeah.
2: Oh, that's great. That's great. That's so awesome you were able to see him. That's it's, – it's, it's I mean, I, we all know that, like, you know, the, the world – we, again, we talked about on the last week's show. The world tour is going all the way through 2024, which is, just boggles the mind. Yeah. So he'll definitely be swinging around through America, the rest of America and then whatever other parts of the world. But hopefully he'll be swinging through this area again maybe, you know, in a year or two,
0: and we we'll get to so. do it all over again. Yeah, as I mentioned, I hadn't seen him since 12 – And and the concerts between 12 and 21 seem to be going more and more to the Sinatra stuff. So even though I was missing it and wanted to see, I was like, "Mm, okay, if I'm missing some of the Sinatra heavy concerts, I can kind of live with that. But then those set lists in 2019 and hearing some of those bootlegs and that those concerts with the stop and start like a rolling stone. And it takes a lot to laugh, takes a train to try. I was like, I got to see this guy the next time he comes around. Little did I know. There yeah. would be a new album, uh, you know, Mur- Murder Most Foul, Springtime and you all this stuff in the middle. And then, and then on to the Cherry on the Sunday is this amazing world tour that we get to see all these new songs.
2: Yeah. It's just that weird, it's, we're, we're all very fortunate that we're here at the time that he's, he's out there doing it. Uh, it's just great. So that's great. That's, that's awesome. You got to see him uh, on, uh, well, the, on this tour.
0: One one other fun note, um, the first time I saw Bob back in 91 that I mentioned, I was 18 years old and Bob was 49. Uh, just before his fiftieth birthday, and this time when I saw him, I'm now forty nine years old, and the man is and the man is eighty. <laughs> it's just crazy.
2: Oh, it's amazing. Oh boy, how that works! And then, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, when I was I mentioned on the show last week, I said my I went with my buddy. I, it was there were four of us and my fiance and uh, my buddy Dan and then and his girlfriend. But my my buddy Dan and I have been seeing Bob Dylan concerts for one month shy of thirty years. Uh, which makes me feel very old, but at the same time, it's like, <laughs> that's great. I'm like, what an amazing treat that there's an artist out there that you can see over that span of time. There just are so few artists that have, have that kind of staying power that you can have that relationship with them in a weird way that you've been doing this for the lar- a large chunk of your life.
0: And to have the material that he's, and to have the things change, you know, him playing keyboard and Although you have the one constant in Tony Garnier, God God yep. bless him. Yep. Uh, let's hope that never changes. But uh, you know, with the you know, the Campbell Sexton band, which was amazing, the the early band with Bucky Baxter on slide, which is one of my favorite bands. Just the, the the permutations it's gone through, but to still be that strong and powerful, and to have his voice at eighty be better than in some ways it was ten years, just ten or fifteen years ago, is just unbelievable.
2: Absolutely. Well, that's a perfect segue to talk about Under the Red Sky. <laughs> you mentioned slide guitar and unbelievable. Perfect. <laughs> nice, Nicely done, Eric. So, uh, <laughs> so let's talk about Under the Red Sky, which is, as I said, it's the title track from the 1990 album. Now, like you said, um, this album is not heralded as one of his great achievements. It was a relative sales disappointment, uh, despite it has a slightly more kind of commercial sheen to it in terms of the participants. I mean, he had the Woz Brothers producing the record, and then it features guest appearances by people like Slash, Elton John, David Crosby, Bruce Hornsby, George Harrison, which we'll get to. Which is very, very atypical for a Bob Dylan record to have all of these sort of celebrity drop ins. That's something just something I think seems so antithetical to Bob and the way he chooses to make his records. But you know, I think maybe that was some idea that hey, this guy's got some heat on him again thanks to the commercial, the critical and commercial success of Oh Mercy, and then, of course, the two Wilburys records. And so now maybe there's an audience here that might pick a new album up that wouldn't have a couple of years ago. Unfortunately, this album really didn't land with people because of various reasons that some of the people went after kind of the lyrics. But I will say, I think as a record, Under the Red Sky holds together really well. It feels cohesive to me in a way that some of his other records do not. And those other records might feature better quote unquote songs, but to me under the red sky really kind of holds up as a piece because of something, you know, that he was trying to get to via his lyrics. I mean, do you find, is that something that, 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 that you feel similarly that the album hangs together for you? 100%, 100%.
0: Uh, you know, I, oftentimes I feel that, uh, this era as you mentioned is forgotten. You know, people say, Oh, 1989, Oh mercy happened. And then yada, yada, yada. In 1996, we got time out of mind, but in, in between some stuff happened in there, you know, a little <laughs> so bit. Yeah. In, in some place, sometimes uh, uh, a lot of good stuff. You have the Toad's place gig, the supper club, that Japanese performance with the orchestra and the never ending tour really takes off. But uh, speaking specifically about under the red sky, I think there's kind of a, there's an interesting aesthetic that sort of weaves its way through the album as you mentioned it hangs it together um and, and this is not an original thought of mine but when i hear it i hear that there's a sort of nursery rhyme aesthetic and mm-hmm. I, I think I, I think bob's provided this album is unique in that bob's provided a sort of rosetta stone to what he meant was thinking around this time in the liner notes um there's a mysterious little note in the liner notes for gabby gugu yeah you may remember and um i remember at the time my 19 year old brain saying Gabby gugu? Yep. What in the world who in the world is a gabby google and I'm talking it over with a friend of mine and we figured oh that must be some hippie chick that bob knows you know <laughs> not for one moment putting together Goo two plus two a baby there's a baby probably involved in here but um yeah when i when i look at this album like you say there's definitely this nursery rhyme type aesthetic running through it and i look at it and I, there's 10 songs on the album and i got six of them wiggle wiggle under the red sky ten thousand men two by two Cats in the Well, and, and I would argue Handy Dandy as well, all sort of fit that little aesthetic. And then you got two songs that came over from the Old Mercy sessions, uh, Born in Time and God Knows. And then you got two sort of outlier songs and unbelievable TV talking songs. So the majority of the songs that were written for this album, six out of the eight, kind of fit that aesthetic and, and hang together. But I, I also feel like the other songs still fit in, even if they didn't necessarily come from that period or you know, if they came from all oh Mercy Outtakes or if they weren't written with that aesthetic in mind. For instance, Unbelievable talks about once there was a man who had no eyes, everything lately and Lady in the Land told him lies. Like that's a almost that fairy tale aesthetic within that song that really isn't a fit the aesthetic of the other songs we're discussing here. But it definitely hangs together. I think, you know, you talked about how it's not really heralded as an album. And I think one of the things that holds it back from people thinking it that way is that it doesn't have the one Massive centerpiece song that everyone agrees is a, is a masterpiece. Now I would argue there's great songs on the that that could fit that. I, I could listen to God knows all day. I love but, that song. <laughs> uh, but, uh, as a, and handy dandy, same thing. I could listen to that all day. And then we got the title track here, which we're going to be discussing in a moment that does fit into that aesthetic. And I think that is, is kind of the reason to discuss this song and how it fits into that frame of mind that Bob had at this time.
2: Yeah, even some of the songs, as you just mentioned, like "Born in Time," which is a holdover from "Oh Mercy," the rewrites to "Born in Time" make it fit more on this record. You know, if he had taken the lyrical version from "Oh Mercy" and tried to do it for "Under the Red Sky," I don't think it would have fit as well. But there, now you could argue the rewrites were not improving the song, uh, and I would, and I would actually agree with that. I think the versions from "Oh Mercy" are superior to the one that we end up hearing on Under the Red Sky. But you could see how he's sort of massaging it to fit the theme or at least the sort of general feeling of Under the Red Sky, as you said, the nursery rhyme. And you know, this was something Bob would continue on with after Under the Red Sky. I mean, he would not, or pretty much right around this time, record This Old Man for That's that it. Disney uh, charity album, uh, which is straight up a nursery rhyme. And then, of course, the very next record, Good As I've Been to You, what does he sing? Froggy yeah, went according. Went according. So I mean, this was this was obviously something that he was experimenting with, uh, that he was trying, and that's what to me makes the album unique and worthy of not just immediate dismissal of like, oh well, no. you know. And as you say, like, I love God knows, I love Handy Dandy. We did a whole hour, a whole hour on Handy Dandy on this show not that long ago because I love that song so much. Yeah, there's a lot here, but. Y- I also agree. There is no one song that's like the masterpiece that everything kind of pivots around uh, the way you have, like say on rough and rowdy ways or, you know, pretty much every record you could point to kind of one song where everybody goes, yeah, that's a great one. This doesn't have that part of it is they're all very short songs, which is very unusual for Bob. These things are two minutes, three. I mean, wiggle wiggle is like two minutes and change. Uh, I mean, I think the longest song is like four minutes or something like that. They're all, very very short song so that's again it's something he's going for uh that you know you can argue whether it was successful or not uh but yeah the, the album has a kind of feeling to it and yeah like you I remember getting the liner notes first of all this record is, is again unique in that it's got the lyrics which is very very strange that normally yeah. doesn't happen and yeah I remember noticing for Gabby Goo, and I'm like who the hell is who the hell is gabby Goo, uh (laughs) and then there was another there's another thing in the liner notes which i'd forgotten about and i I, when i was digging them out for this recording there's this weird thing at the bottom talking about that you if you want to get limited edition notes from the from bob dylan you can sign up through some entertainment fan site and i'm like what the hell is that thing yeah. I never did it. I wish I had. But that's, that seems like something you would have seen in like a 60s Beatles record. You know, hey, kids, you like the Beatles? You know, you could become part of the Beatles fan club. And I'm like, what is this thing in the middle of under the writ Like, it just seems like it's buried at the bottom of the liner notes. I wonder if anyone out there listening ever got those or signed up for it, please let us know because I'd love to know what, what those even are. It seems so atypical for Bob Dylan to even be involved in something like that.
0: There's, yeah, there's a lot on there that's atypical. The other thing I, I noticed when looking through the liner notes is that when they list the players on every song, I don't know if you noticed this, everyone has their full name listed except for Bob. It's just listed as Bob, yeah. which, <laughs> which I find a very 90s thing that a lot of bands are doing around that time. And Again, atypical for Bob. There's yeah. also a nice concert shot of Bob G.E. Smith and Tony Gagné in, in the middle fold, which uh, was interesting. But Yeah, I don't know anyone who sent away for those notes. I I may have kind of apocryphally heard that no one ever got anything sent back. I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah. <laughs> I imagine if they exist, they would go on eBay for a pretty penny because I think there's a lot of us out there who'd like to see them.
2: Yeah. Um, also, I also discovered this online that the, there's that photo of Bob in the back where he's sitting on the stoop, uh, <laughs> and it, it looks kind of lonely, like he's just sort of sitting there. There's nobody around, and it is it is credited to camouflage photo. And I looked up online, and apparently, according to another Bob Dylan site, they said that company does not exist. That's not a thing. So, that's
0: <laughs> <a> course, <voice. laughs> that's, that's Constan- a Bob.
2: constantly throwing people uh, off their gifts. Well, so, okay,
0: I, I'm still trying to figure out who that mysterious producer Jack Frost is. I haven't yeah, seen any- right,
2: Who's that guy? <laughs> Bob seems to work well with him. I don't know why he didn't use him for Rough and Ready Way. So, okay, let's let's talk about Under the Red Sky, the the, the second song on the record. Uh, according to the the production of this was, um, this was done. Uh, there there is an alternate take of it. Apparently, I have not heard that. Under the Red Sky, as an album, has not gotten the full bootleg series treatment. Uh, the way a lot of other records have. I mean, some of the bootlegs have have escaped. Uh, there was uh, the alternate Born in Time made it onto the t- Telltale Signs, but most of the stuff that was recorded uh, for Under the Red Sky, the record has still been. It's still in the vaults. Uh, there's that alternate song that he gave to, not gave to the Was Brothers, but the Was Brothers recorded it, and Shirley Temple don't live here anymore. Uh, I've never heard that. That song has not made it out of the, the vaults, at least to my knowledge, which is amazing because it's, it's an original Bob Dylan song. It's still kind of floating, floating out there. But apparently Bob did it once or twice and then came back at the mixing section, mix, mixing session, excuse me, and decided to re-record the lyrics. And there's a great interview with Don Was where he says, if you're a record producer and you're getting ready for the mixing session and then the, the, the artist says, no, I want to redo the lyrics, he's like, you, you're losing your mind. You're like, wait a minute, we were done. You know, what are you doing? Now, Bob apparently didn't mess with the lyrics on this song, but he did bring in George Harrison. And that is when George Harrison came in to add his slide guitar to this song, which I, to me makes the song. It's, you know, to me, it's this song is the slide guitar. So I can't even imagine what this would sound like without those beautiful sounds, courtesy of, of Nelson Woolbury.
0: I mean, those, George Harrison is, is my guy. So to hear those slide, you know, the slide guitar at the end of it is amazing, especially at, during the fade out where you can kind of hear that. Forgive me. Where he goes, yep. like knowing, knowing George's sense of humor. I just find that, I find that lick almost funny. You know, I find it's like a, like a little joke of it. you know? Uh, yeah. That's, that's one of the things I love most about the song is that George is playing on it and he's playing that beautiful slide guitar break twice.
2: <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, there are versions of this without the slide you can hear and we'll talk about those because of the, the live version, but I do want to uh, go back to the lyrics a little bit after the opening verse it says there was an old man and he lived in the moon. One summer's day, he came passing by. There was an old man. He lived in the moon. One day he came passing by. Someday little girl, Everything for you is going to be new. Someday, little girl, you'll have a diamond as big as your shoe. Let the wind blow low, let the wind blow high. One day, the little boy and the little girl were both baked in a pie. Let the wind blow, let the wind blow high. One day, the little boy and little girl were baked in a pie. And then we get to, uh, this is the key to the kingdom, and this is the town. This is the blind horse that leads you around. So, in your mind, uh, for you, Eric, like what... in? Do you have a meaning to for, for you personally, what this song is, what's happening in this song? So I,
0: I, when I first heard the song, probably not, but over the years, I think I've come to sort of understand what may be going on here. And, and this is just my theory, but, you know, going back for a second to that nursery rhyme aesthetic, right? So you have a little boy and a little girl, but they live in an alley and it's <laughs> under the red sky. So if you think about most nursery rhymes that we know, right, that a lot of them, Intended for children, but they also have this sinister slash violent undertones, right? So you think of like Jack and Jill going up a hill and then falling down and breaking their heads, or or mm-hmm. Humpty Dumpty on a wall falling down and can't be put back together again, or or Three Blind Mice, which ends up being about animal mutilation, right? So <laughs> this song, maybe it's just my interpretation, but you got a little boy and a little girl, and they live in an alley, and mm-hmm. and some people think of a red sky, oh, it's a beautiful sunset, but a, to me, a red sky could also be sort of foreboding. Right. yeah so, so oh my oh my gosh and then you got the old man and yes the, the old man in the moon is a, a you know a known archetype of oh there's an old man in the moon but it can also sometimes i i feel like it may represent like a creepy old man creeping by the alley where the boy and the girl live hmm.
2: like,
0: what's he doing what's he doing here again that makes me my weird interpretation but i find the um the bridges most interesting so the the first one there where he says um Someday, little girl, everything for you is going to be new. You'll have the diamond as big as your shoe. To me, that's kind of a break in the song. And he's talking directly to, to Gabby. As as the father of two young children, you know, I know a thought that I've often had is that um, I want to give everything to my children, you know? And when he says someday, little girl, and we know the child's a girl, everything for you will be new and you'll have a diamond as big as your shoe. I, I think it's things that he wants to give his child. And, um, I can relate, I can relate to that. (laughs) And then, um, and the other break in the, the other break, the other uh, break that you mentioned there, I I had a little bit more time with uh, interpreting until I read uh, on Tony Atwood's site that Bob told Don was that this song was about his hometown.
2: Yeah, I saw that too.
0: And on first blush, it doesn't make much sense, but this, that second break where he says this is the key to the kingdom this is the town i'm wondering if the kingdom is is his hometown this this is the town and then the song is the blind horse leading you around the various things that were that are in his town or that he feels about his town
2: huh i never
0: i've never thought about that it's interesting I, i may be completely out on the ledge with that one i don't know but that was kind of i i was sort of a when i read about that uh the hometown thing and then he said uh this is the kingdom and this is the town i kind of had a aha hmm i maybe that must be what he's talking about
2: that that's really interesting i've never I never really considered that i like you i find the the phrase living under the red sky to be kind of ominous uh you know cuz the, the sky – yeah it could sound it could sound beautiful and it has, uh, George Harrison's slide guitar has that kind of, I don't even know, like, sunset y feel, if that yeah. makes any sense. Uh, you yeah. know, like, it feels that, that slide guitar sounds like a sunset to me. I have no idea what that means. It just does. But yeah, to me, Under the Red Sky has a, has a slightly sinister, Uh, cast to it Um, part of it might be my history of comic books comic book reading (laughs) because in the 80s there was a series that DC Comics put out called uh, this is so far afield but it's what's what's in your brain when this stuff hits you there was a series they did called Crisis on Infinite Earths about uh, all their universes colliding into one and the the, the harbinger of imminent destruction was red skies Uh, when the skies turned red that meant oh you know shit's about to go down and i can't help. obviously there's no connection here i highly doubt bob dylan was digging out his issues of crisis on the when he was writing this but i that's what i hear you know among certain comic book people of my vintage like you i was a child of the 80s red skies kind of means one thing and yeah. so when i hear it here it has like yeah it has a similar feel to it i've always taken it as that this is the, the line about um, the man in the moon went home and the river went dry uh, sounds not too dissimilar to some of the songs on Woolbury's Volume 3. Uh, Inside Out has a you know kind of an environmental kind of uh, you know, concern to it. Devil's Been Busy as well. And I always feel like this song is about the potential in any given small town. For people to realize, uh, like to live in harmony with nature and to uh, kind of be able to capitalize on all the gifts that they're given at birth, kind of. And because of external forces, that is being shunted aside in favor of less... um, uh, less, I don't want to use the word holy because that, that's got a religious connotation, but just less pure concerns because that, that, those lines, this is the key to the kingdom. This is the town. This is the blind horse that leads you around. Well, nobody wants to be led around by a blind horse. That's bad. And so to me, it's like saying everything is here. Everything that you need is here, but you're not going to be able to manifest your destiny because you're being led around by a blind horse. So to me, this has got that kind of dark feel to it. And lots of other Dylan songs are about huge catastrophes. And even a couple songs later on this record, TV talking song, there's a riot. And the disaster is huge and noisy and in public and hard to miss. But this is, to me, Bob saying, these kinds of minor disasters are also happening in quiet little towns. And it's off the beaten track. And there's potential here for these people, but it'll never be realized because they allow the blind horse to lead them around. Why they do, I don't know who is the blind horse. What is the blind horse? I don't really know. But to me, this song has always felt like one of missed opportunities and regret. And that beautiful slide guitar that Harrison has to me just has that feel to it. It's mournful it's so beautiful, but it's so sad at the same time. And so to me, that's always been, in my mind, what this song is about. At least for me, that's what this song's about.
0: Well, that's interesting. You know, I was struck while you were talking about how we sort of came from similar moods to the song, but mm-hmm. to completely different interpretations, both completely valid, both mm-hmm. completely different. Um, yeah, that's, that's uh, amazing.
2: Yeah, I mean, it said it's, it's, and again, it, and I've heard live versions, and again, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and I will admit, the live versions, to me, don't have the same power because they don't have that slide. I mean, they, some of them do, because he's got slide guitar. You know, you talk about Bucky Baxter playing slide guitar and stuff. But the Harrison thing is just so gorgeous. I mean, it's just so beautiful. And, uh, you know, it's also just, it's, you know, despite my feelings about the song being kind of grim, there's, there is a warmth to it knowing that Bob brought in his buddy George to play this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the only, you know, I mean, it's, it's not the only song where they've played together outside of Woolberries, but it's, it's, it was like the first one I could think of where it was like Harrison was brought in to be like, all right, he's going to be on the record. And here he is on the record. I mean, they did The If Not For You, but that never made it onto New Morning. But here it is, George Harrison being brought in on slide guitar for this song. And it just, I, and I agree with you, the way the slide guitar ends the song. You know, like the lyrics end, I mean, he ends it with, again, the refrain about let the bird sing, let the bird fly, the man went home and the river went dry. But then the song goes on for like another full 30, 45 seconds of just George Harrison. So it's like Bob's sort of like standing off to the side and like, all right, George, wrap this up for us. <laughs> and it's just something so beautiful about it, even though, like I said, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a sad song.
0: There, there is. And I'm, I'm always cranking up when the song starts to fade out. I'm always cranking up my volume because I want to get every note of that solo that I can get. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so beautiful it's so it's so classic george it's exactly what you want to hear in that moment i i just wish the song had gone on maybe another 15 or 20 seconds longer to get <laughs> more of that but.
2: that's something else that's unique about under the red skies that in you know i'm just kind of running the songs over in my head every virtually every song i think on that record ends with a fade and that's not always like, a lot of dylan songs end st- hard stops yeah. but every single some of them end in the middle of him singing for Pete's sakes, which is, <laughs> God knows, he's still singing, right. but it fades That's away. Right. Yeah. Uh, but these songs all have that kind of very slow fade out, which again, uh, for these songs that are very short, that means that he's kind of, the, the lyrically, they're not, the, the lines are very short, they're not very, it's not very dense, and then he's giving a lot of space to the musicians. Now, maybe that was because he felt the need to, if you got have all these kind of big stars on your record. Uh, maybe you want to, you know, if you're going to bring in Bruce Hornsby to play piano, or you're going to bring in David Crosby to sing backup, you kind of want to give them some space. But this does feel at times a little bit like, you know, Bob Dylan and and, and his all-stars or something. <laughs> this kind of feel to it. But uh, yeah, this song has always just felt so sad to me in a kind of beautiful way. And uh, again, that's, that's always been the, the sort of take I've had on it. I've just never been able... To shake that. Now we were talking about the live versions. Uh, this has been played 148 times from 1990, so right after the record came out, and then he kept he uh, played it off and on until 2013, which again, that's a little longer than I would have expected it to. Um, have you? Did you go back and listen? Because uh, some of them are on YouTube. Have you listened to some of these live versions?
0: I have, and I was actually I believe I'm pretty sure he played this song the first three shows I saw him. He played it each of wow. the first three shows, so I've seen him perform it a few times. And in fact, the, the first time I saw him play it in place of the George Harrison slide guitar, he had this little stand up piano in front of him. Hmm. Like it was, it probably only came up to his knees or so. And at the end of the song, he took his, his guitar and slung it on the back of his back and he leaned over, would plunked along in a sort of outro to the song on a, this little stand up piano, which something I never saw him do since that time. But it was, it was very, it was the only song he played the piano during that concert. And I found it. Interesting,
2: yeah, that's okay. I mean, it, it this has gotten more live play than I would have expected. You know, when I looked it up, I was like, wow, it's it's not a lot considering some of his other songs, but it's more than I would have planned on. just because the Under the Red Sky songs have not gotten a lot of live play, uh, you know, they just generally have, have not. Um, but so this one, and he said, by the fact that he was playing it right as the record was coming out, uh, I think clearly it was something that he was he thought he wanted to. Present and and give it its give it more attention than some of the other ones like you know wiggle wiggle or whatever <laughs> handy dandy <laughs> yeah. or ten thousand men which has never been played live or anything like that. Well,
0: but um, actually, actually, ten thousand men was played one time and I was there, I happened to be there for it, it was in uh, you're at the University of Rhode Island.
2: Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. Wow. And I would
0: I would uh, highly recommend you search it up because it's amazing. If you like the if you like the original song, the original song has the Vaughn Brothers on it, Jimmy and uh, Stevie Ray, and. Uh, Charlie and Tony do their best to try and uh, live up to that standard. It's really amazing. It's out there on YouTube. I recommend any of oh, you listening to it. Oh,
2: home. yeah. Here I see it. November 12, 2000, South Kingston, Rhode Island. There you yep. go. Wow. Look at you. That's <laughs> yeah, I, great. I feel,
0: I, you know, I don't know how many of his of his own compositions he's only played once, but I, I feel extremely lucky to have been there for this This of his own song. That he only played one time. And it's from an album that I seem to appreciate a bit more than others. I, I remember uh, when he played the song, I'm looking around, is anyone else reacting to the fact he's playing ten- Of course, does anyone really care he's playing 10,000 Men right now? I don't know, but I, I do. It was amazing.
2: That's, I'm too lazy to do this, but that would make an amazing Spotify playlist of one-shots. Like every song yeah. that Bob Dylan has played in concert just once and not again. That would make an interesting list of like what, what's out there that's just, yeah. that he felt like he bothered to rehearse it with the band and to do it that one time and then like, no, 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 that's it. That's it. Yeah, what, what was it that caused him to one day
0: go, eh, let's play 10,000 men today. Like, what? <laughs> what?
2: I don't know. Bob, what are you talking about? Uh, now, I find it, uh, again, uh, not, to, not to get all uh, A.J. Weberman here and dig through the, the garbage of Bob Dylan's life. Uh, but I do find it interesting about what some songs get uh, put on compilations versus others. Because uh, this song was not released as a single. Uh, it was uh, born in time was put out as a single and unbelievable was a single. Uh, not that they charted it in any way, but unbelievable, as we already mentioned, got a music video, but this was never released as a single in any way as a promotion for this record. Nevertheless, it appears on greatest hits volume three, which is, you know, a misnomer. It was never a hit. It was not even close to a hit. And then it was put on the 2007 Dylan kind of set, which was the sort of all encompassing career retrospective that Sony put out. And I always find that to be very interesting because obviously I would imagine Dylan has, I don't know how how much interest he has in these things and and getting involved in them. He must have some. And I find it very interesting that this song uh, got picked for both those compilations when it was not remotely a hit. And it makes me think, is this because Dylan likes it over some other songs? I mean, maybe there's a kind of like, well, we want to have one from every record do we, what do you want to do? You know, let's do the Unbelievable was the single, but let's do it. To me, that, that, that tells me something about how the Dylan camp feels about this song, that it was specifically chosen to be put on two compilations when it was never a hit in any way.
0: Agree. And I think, like, as you mentioned, the amount of times he played it live uh, also speaks to that as well. So I think there's some little indication there that, that he has a special uh, feeling for this song. I don't think any of the songs were played live all that much. If I were to guess, I would guess that this one was played the most out of any of them, except there was a period where he played God knows for a little while. And maybe God knows it surpassed it, but I think there is an indication that if he's going to pick anything from this song, it's going to be that one.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm not aware of any covers of this song. Uh, I, I looked it up, but I didn't, I didn't see any listings things of this. So this, again, is one of the kind of thing that, uh, you know, it, it's, not it, it you know exists on the on the record and there it is and again despite the fact that it's on the compilations it's not something that's sort of had like a greater life outside of uh, you know Bob Dylan as a performing it but again I think it's one of the highlights of the record um, I mean I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy Wiggle Wiggle for what it is uh, <laughs> but I, you know I remember th- you know thinking boy can you imagine if you're buying Under the Red Sky as a new fan right and you're like oh he's got a new record out i'll buy this one and then that's the first song and you're like uh, <laughs> like this, this guy's brilliant is that really what this guy is but then we get to this and all of a sudden to me it's like this really in a lot of ways to me this is the kickoff of the album wiggle wiggle feels like a a prologue yeah. uh but this to me like under the red sky officially starts with this song and of course it's one of those, you know, there's only about half the Dylan records where the title track is all, you know, the, the album is got the same title as one of the songs. I always find that interesting why he chooses that versus some others. You know, there's a Tempest, uh, there's a Highway 61, but there's no, <laughs> no Blonde on Blonde, there's yeah. no blank. There's yeah. no blood on the tracks, but there yeah. is an Under the Red Sky. But to me, this, this feels like the announcement of like, this is what I'm trying to do with this record is this song.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, by the way, I just want to say that I stand for Wiggle Wiggle. It's another song I've actually seen him perform live. So when you're ready for the Wiggle Wiggle pod, just let me know. <laughs>
2: but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eventually. Eventually we'll have to get to it. We'll have to get to it. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's, it's a really beautiful song. It's one that I've, when I used to do kind of like uh, uh, iPhone playlists, I would put this on a lot because to I me, mean, I don't get tired of it. I don't think it wears out its welcome. Uh, I agree with you. I would have loved to have heard maybe another 15 seconds of George Harrison putting Mm -hmm. in that slide guitar. Uh, It would have been great. But to me, it's it's a really pretty song. It has a lot to say, but it sounds very simple. Um, There have been a lot of Bob Dylan songs that have been turned into children's books. And this could be one of those. uh, You know, as you said, like a lot of children's fairy tales are scary. They're pretty grim. I mean, yeah, yeah. Grim's fairy tales are pretty... This this could be that kind of song if somebody... That kind of... Thing if somebody wanted to because it just has you could picture a man in the moon and the, the people getting the kids getting baked in a pie and stuff like <laughs> that I and mean, you could you could imagine all that so he said it's he keeps it simple uh, I again I would love to know the alternate version if there's different lyrics if this is something I don't believe this got rewritten when he did the mixing session but I don't know but man I would love to hear what else is is out there this but it's, it's a really beautiful song
0: yeah it's it's a, sh- it's a shame really really the whole album but this song as well there's really no alternate versions of of any of this stuff out there. there's been two bootleg series that cover this period and there's been no songs from these sessions on any of them. So hopefully we get that down the line
2: sometime. Yes. I'm seeing whatever the uh, bootleg series, volume 37, the, uh, <laughs> the under the red sky session. So I,
0: I am there for it. I'll be first in line. Absolutely. So, <laughs>
2: well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on to talk about under the red sky. I said, I love it when we get to talk about some of the, you know, less traveled corners or alleys, as it were, of uh, mm-hmm. Dylan's canon. And so this was just great. So thank you so much for coming on.
0: Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate it.
2: No problem. So, of course, before we sign off, I have to ask you the question I've been asking everybody lately. Uh, I've changed it up. Uh, since obviously, we don't need to ask the, the opening, uh, tour opening songs anymore. Uh, so I want to ask you the question, courtesy of the Pomegranate County Irregulars over on Twitter. If you got invited to a Bob Tribute concert, and you're on first, Eric, what song would you like to perform?
0: So I've thought about this a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to quickly name check three songs. So I mentioned Key West and how much that means to me. Um, I don't think it would be great to lead off a concert, though. So that one would be <laughs> out. <laughs> um, Idiot Wind, just to be able to sing that and with the with the vitriol on the, the album version, not the, the real live version of, of the hard-rate uh, version, rather. But the, <laughs> the album version, to be able to, to sing those lyrics in that way, I think would be very, very cathartic. And I absolutely love that song. So that was also a choice. But I'm going to put that one aside, and the one that I would choose is Joker Man, which I, as a song I've seen him lead off concerts with around 94 era, uh, including his Woodstock gig, he uh, led off with Joker Man. Uh, I love it as a lead-off song, and just to be able to sing that part, oh, 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 oh <laughs> Joker Man, I just find it uh, euphoric and a great way to lead off a show.
2: That's a great choice. That would be a great opener to hear Joker Man. That would be tremendous, so. That's a great I love <laughs> idiot win, though. Like, woo! That's <laughs> right. Yeah, you
0: can't kick off a concert with that much hang halfway. Through. Yeah, yeah,
2: you yeah. got you got to lead up to that. You can't you can't do that <laughs> immediately. So those are all those are all great suggestions. But yeah, Joker Man would be uh, would be fantastic. So well, again, Eric, thank you so much for being on. Why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Sure,
0: I'm at Eric underscore Brightman, and I mostly follow along with uh, a lot of Dylan Twitter.
2: All right. Sounds good. So, of course, everybody, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Pod Dylan on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com FW Podcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be named checked on a show of your choice. So, big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, Sebastian Krug, George Jordy, and Maki Meckel for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. That's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later.
1: Bye. I went back to the uh, hotel, feeling a little pity and everything else. And the phone rang. It was like about 12 o'clock at night. The fa- phone rang. Hello, Michael. Yes, it's George. I said, Ge- George Harrison. He yeah, hi, George. Hi. I said, me and my mate, you know, we're out here. So come by and say hi. I said, yeah, yeah, come on by. So I knock on the door. George Harrison walks in with Bob Dylan. Oh, my <laughs> God what? Bob Dylan has the biggest dog you have ever seen in your life. <laughs> Comes on and doesn't say much. So I said, "Wow, I just want the thing. Let's celebrate!" So I get some caviar ordered up, got some caviar put out there, and I'm talking to George. I have to keep this dog keeps walking back across <laughs> it. Next thing I know, Bob Dylan hasn't said anything to I'm talking. Next thing I know, the dog smells the caviar. He goes, "Oh," uh, <laughs> <laughs> he starts licking up and, and I'm going, "This is Bob Dylan's dog." And Bob Dylan said a word yet the whole night. And then finally he looks over and he goes, Far out. The nice. dog loves caviar. So